I know you guys have missed. I know that it's been weeks, months since uh, I kept up with uh, Gabe's promise to talk to about talk about rooted every single week until eternity, until Jesus comes back. Rooted every single week. You just get yourself signed up for rooted. I I love one of the lines that he said where he says, um, uh, "Let's go," like. Let's not make a big to-do about it. Like, let's just do it. Um, and really, that's what Rooted is about, is about spending 10 weeks just doing what God tells us to do. And then we're astounded when God shows up and develops these relationships, these connections, and, and, and we grow in our faith in really incredible and beautiful ways. And, and so um, we, we say here, we've said this for a couple years now, is that Rooted is the answer. If you want to know how to get connected, if you want to know about how to find a place to serve, if you want to know about who Jesus is or how to grow in your faith, all those types of things, you need to get signed up for Rooted. You can do it at mymcc.cc slash Rooted. And the great thing is that um, this fall, we're going to be offering Rooted twice. Once, we're going to be offering Rooted on Tuesday night at 6.30 in person, okay? So you can come in person to Rooted. And then we're also going to be offering Rooted on Sunday night in an online version. So whether you just can't make it on Tuesday night and you want to do it online, or if you're online and you want to do it online, um, you can do that Sunday night. Or online or Tuesday in person. Um, can, can we, before we get into our sermon, we're going to be in Matthew 12. So if you have a Bible, um, if you follow along, you can go to Matthew 12. If you don't, it's all going to be on the screen here, so you don't have to worry about it. We'll, we'll keep along um, there. But if you, if you like to, you can have a Bible um, just like me here uh, in, in Matthew 12. But uh, this may be the only time in all of my years here that you're ever going to hear me say this, Okay. So we're recording this. Pay attention, okay? This may be the only time ever. Can we for a moment say praise God for rain? Right? Man. Praise God for rain. That. <laughs> now, just so you know, if you're excited about the rain now, we're not going to hold it against you in January when we all hate the fact that we haven't seen the sun for four months because this is an exception. The forest fires are an exception that we can all celebrate the rain together. Um, but bring on some blue skies for me. Anyways, um, we are in Matthew 12. So if you have a Bible, Matthew 12 is where we're going to be. Today, we're going to look at three verses. We're actually predominantly going to look at one verse. Just one verse in all Matthew 12. I'm not going to tell you yet because you're going to read it. And then you're going to get ahead of me. Okay? Matthew 12. We're predominantly just going to look at one. We'll look at all three. But um, uh, it, it is a verse that has quite a history. In fact, there's a Swiss theologian named Eric Lutz, who's a leading theologian um, who has advocated, along with a lot of other pastors, commentators, theologians, critics, who've advocated that we should never teach on this passage. This is one of his quotes right here. Out of this passage, no fruits of love have arisen. Out of this passage, no fruits of love. Uh, in fact, he did a survey in his, in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He did a survey uh, for 2,000 years. He studied every reference he could about this passage. And he said there is overwhelming abundance that this passage, when taught, more often does harm than it does good. <laughs> Aren't you excited? 
Aren't you glad you came today? Right now, our online viewership just dropped by 40%. They're like, I'm going to go watch somebody happier. Um, uh, th- there's another theologian uh, today. He wrote a, a, like one of the best books on the, the gospel of Matthew, and his name's Bruner. And he said this. This is the quote that he said about this passage. This text seems most often to be used in self-serving and other damning ways. <laughs> Welcome to church. Self-serving and other damning ways. This passage, um, Bruner goes on to give us three reasons that we actually shouldn't ever study this passage. He doesn't say that we should remove from the Bible. It's there. Jesus said it. It's, nobody's, nobody's cutting it out of Scripture. But everybody's just saying there, there's just a time and place and there's just not a lot of value in it. And when we, when we spend too much time in this passage, things get sideways and things get weird. And so Bruner actually articulated three reasons that we shouldn't study this passage, which is what I want to give you before we get started. The three reasons that we shouldn't study this passage, okay? So Bruner said this. The first one is, he said um, that what is, being, what is occurring in this passage occurred in a time and place and in a context that can never be recreated. Never be recreated. Because you see, he, here's what's happening. If you don't know the passage, we're going to get to it. But what's happening is that um, some people are telling Jesus that he's possessed by a demon. Okay? Now, you can't ever, you can't ever look at Jesus incarnate and say you are possessed by the devil. You can never do that. If you do, it's called the second coming. You're going to have bigger issues on your mind than Jesus standing in front of you. You will never have Jesus stand in front of you and be able to look at him and say, you have a demon, right? So it's just, it's a, it's a good story. There's things we can learn, but the context is never going to be recreated. That's one reason he said we shouldn't spend too much time worrying about this passage. The second one, this is like the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do every time you do a sermon. You're supposed to create urgency about why you want to study this passage. And let me just tell you all the reasons you shouldn't. So number two, Bruner says this, um, that if you have a curiosity about this passage... If you have a sorting of trying to figure out, like, is this good or is this good? Is this evil or is this evil? He says that if you have that curiosity, it's shown in your heart that you haven't violated what this passage is teaching about. So by being curious about it, you don't have to worry about it, is basically what he says. The last one, uh, which I like, I think is most um, weighty and applicable, is um, he says that only God can forgive sin, so only God gets to decide what is unforgivable. So the passage we're going to look at today has been called, most often colloquially, we know it as uh, the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. There are a lot of reasons that we should avoid this passage. There are a lot of reasons, as Bruner pointed out, that this passage has been used as abusive and violent and, and destructive and undercut the gospel and undercut grace and mercy and God's goodness rather than elevating God's mercy and God's holiness and God's righteousness. It's been used to tear people down and to create division amongst people. So with all of that as a warning to us to be humble as we enter into this passage, as we, as we begin to read and try and sort things out, to be humble at heart, I, I, I want to ask you to make a commitment with me, okay? I want to ask you, I'm, I'm in a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to raise your right hand and then repeat after me, and here's the deal thing. You can raise your right hand, and then if you don't agree, you don't have to say it, okay? There's no, like, trick at the end. There's no, okay? But, but I, I, I want us to be so serious 
As we come to this passage, that is, as Lutz and as Bruners pointed out, has been so destructive for so many that we would take everything we hear and everything we believe and every thought and emotion and we would, we would not trust those. The scripture says that our, that our heart is exceedingly wicked, far more than we can fathom or imagine, that we wouldn't trust those, that we would filter everything we think or believe, even the way we interpret scripture through the lens of scripture. I had a professor in college and he said that um, one of the really important things when you're studying scripture is to take the many easy to understand passages to help you understand the few difficult to understand passages. Okay? You take all these, all these ones that are, oh, they're obvious, easy, simple, and you take those to help understand the few simple ones. He said, um, uh, if you want an equation to create a cult, just do the opposite. Okay? So if that's your life goal, if you want to create a cult, here's how you do it. You just take some really obscure, difficult to understand passage and you use that to interpret the rest of scripture. Right? And so that we would be humble. Okay, so, so we're going to do this. I, I think that there's something important about involving your body. And so I'm going to ask you to raise a hand. Okay? And to repeat after me. If you're online, I can't see you. But the Lord does. So don't be a liar. Revelation, Revelation 21 8, 21 8. Liars go to hell. Liars go to hell. Go burn, burn. You're welcome. So there's that. <laughs> I don't even, that's not in my notes. If you're surprised, that's not in my notes. Here you go. Okay, you ready? Here we go. I promise to not make this passage about someone else. To listen patiently what God has to say to me. To not utter the phrase, you know who needs to hear this. I promise to refute the lies of the enemy, to believe the words of Scripture, that the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. I promise to pray daily for many national championships for the Oregon Ducks. I just, I felt like we had a roll going there. Like we had a moment and I just wanted to kind of capture on it to the glory of God. Um, no, seriously though, seriously though, um, we're going to look at this. And, and I've spent enough time in ministry to know that the greatest weapon that Satan has against you is shame and secrets. And he's going to use those shame and secrets to try and keep you in silence and in doubt, and in fear. And that's not at all what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to walk in faith, in a boldness. And we've not been given a spirit of timidity, but of boldness, okay? So here we go, we're gonna look at it. Everybody ready? Here it is, here's the verse. Starting in verse 30, if you're following along, Matthew 12, verse 30. It says this. It says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Did you see it? Do you see what's so shocking and uncomfortable? You see what has divided so many people, what has up, uh, upturned even civilizations that's created such chaos that could be so dangerous. You see it? Maybe if you um, read it for the very first time, you would. I mean, it, there, there's something so unnatural about reading this. For, I mean, just look. Do you see it with me? Look, look at this. Look at what Jesus says. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Isn't that shocking? I mean, I looked it up, because you know me, right? I looked it up. I looked up the Greek, right, here for this word, every. I won't bore you with its root and all that kind of stuff, but, but um, there's another sufficient translation uh, that it says, all Every, just, okay, just, I feel like we're not quite as shocked as um, they were in the moment in Jesus' day. Look at what Jesus said. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Here's something that I, I think you need to know. I, I want you to remember today it, is that there is nothing so broken that God cannot heal and make beautiful again. There is nothing so broken that God cannot heal and make beautiful again. Every sin and slander can be forgiven. This, there, is, there is no time in human history before Jesus and only because of Christian roots has anything like this ever been uttered. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. It's the truth that's weaved all throughout the New Testament, and it's amazing. It's why I really think that um, one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, in our culture, and in almost every culture leading up to ours around the world and throughout human history has been this one. You know it, John 3.16, right? It says this in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, ever, uh, have eternal life. For God so loved the world. This verse here is shocking and uncomfortable. Now, it may not be for many of us because we've kind of become spoiled. Many of us have spent enough time in the church that this statement here, that, that had never been uttered in all of human history, that this idea that, that, that revolutionized human history has changed cultures, has rubbed against every single culture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have, so many of us have come to the point of going, okay, yeah, God loves us. God loves everybody. But did you know that until Jesus uttered these words, that no one in human history had uttered something like this? There had been people groups, there had been religions that would say, well, for God so loved us. 
For, for God so loved us. I mean, even uh, not at all trying to bag on the Jews because we're so grateful and, and they have so much wisdom and insight and understanding uh, scripture. But, but the, the Jews would have said, I mean, this is who Jesus is saying this to, is to a Jewish leader who's shocked and astounded. For God so loved the world? For God so loved, I mean, he probably would have said, Nicodemus is his name, he probably would have said, well, I mean, Jesus, you know. For God so loves us. I mean, we're the treasured possession, we're the chosen people, for God so loves us. And many of us are really comfortable with that idea, for God so loves us. However you define us. But this whole sentence, this whole statement by Jesus, something in it rubs against every society. I mean, for us, we could just look through at the things that make us uncomfortable. That he gave his only begotten son, do you know some critics of Christianity have said that this verse alone advocates for basically uh, divine child abuse? Because there's something so uncomfortable about a love that's demonstrated to the extent of gladly, and the son gladly giving his life in our place, that whoever believes in him, <laughs> we're like, okay, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I mean, even like, even to get on like a no-cut basketball team, right? Even to get a no-cut basketball team where everyone gets a participation trophy, you gotta pay your dues. You gotta pay some money, you gotta put on a jersey, you gotta show up. Whoever believes, that's it? You don't have to be morally upright, you don't have to be better, you don't have to sacrifice, you don't have to give up. That, 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 that this gift, this promise is whoever believes, there's something in it that just grinds against all that we know and is so shocking and uncomfortable. Many of us have become inoculated to the beauty and the profoundness of the grace of God that he's shown us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, that all, all you have to do, believe, that's it, that's it. And then, and then look at this, you can have eternal life. There's something more than this world. That what God is, is inviting you to, that what God's calling you to is, is a kind of life. Well, we have it written on our lobby. If you've been to the building, it says in the lobby, it says uh, that, that I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. That, that God's inviting you to find a fullness in this broken existence that doesn't end with your grave. Or something about all of this verse that grinds on us, there would have been people who said, you know, oh, well, of course, God so loved us, and it would have been profound and uncomfortable for Jesus to say, for God so loved the world, but even the idea that God loves is born out of a Christian understanding of the world. Most religions throughout all of human history have, have been built on the premise that God so tolerates you. That if you do all the right things, that if you pass the benchmarks, that if you earn your position, that if you do enough stuff, if you give enough money, if you give enough time, if you serve enough people, you can convince God that you're worthy. But Jesus utters this shocking an unpleasant and uncomfortable thing that if we take to the heart of just this verse, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you, for God, and, and here's, here, John, John, he, he writes this in the gospel, John, John 3, 16, but he writes elsewhere in 1 John, he says it this way, he says, God is love. Just breathe that in for a moment. 
He doesn't say God loves people. He doesn't say that God does loving things. You remember your grandma used to pinch your chin. Oh, you're so adorable. God isn't like your grandma who just like loves, right? God isn't just like some big hippie from the 70s in the sky. Just love everybody, right? God is love. To know God is to know love. To be in his presence is to be loved. To be in relationship with him is to be his beloved. And, and here's the great news, the good news that's riddled all throughout the gospel is that what that means is that what you bring to the table is nothing. Because God does not love you because what you bring to the table or what you offer for God so loved the world that he did it. That for God so loved your spouse that he did it. For God so loved the neighbor who just drives you bonkers that he did it. That God is love. That God is love. So what that means is that it's the overflow of his being, that, that, that what God has to say about your past and your present or your future is I love you, I've chosen you, you are my son or my daughter. Paul writes elsewhere in the book of Romans, he says this, which I think is so important for us to remember and to be reminded of in those moments of doubt and shame and guilt and fear. He, he says this in Romans 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, the good news of the gospel is just as Matthew recorded Jesus saying in Matthew 12 that all, every sin and slander can be forgiven. And so this morning, this day, if you feel shame or guilt or if you have whisperings in your ear, remember what we promised ourselves at the very beginning, that we'd believe the words of Scripture that we wouldn't believe the lies of Satan, that we wouldn't believe our own self-doubt, that we wouldn't try and convince ourselves that we need to earn our way, that we need to be better people, that we need to convince God that we're lovable or honorable or caring, but rather that we would remember that God so loved us, that God is love, that because of the overflow of his nature, that everything can be forgiven, that there is nothing too broken that God cannot heal and make beautiful today, again today. For some of us, that means that there are moments, there are places in our life where we need to leave believing the lives of Satan. We need to turn from those lives. We need to walk back. We need to return. We need to repent. We need to uh, 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 repent to God for believing the lives of Satan. We need to repent to God that we tried to convince him that we, were, that we could earn our salvation, that we could earn his love, that we could earn making up for all the brokenness. For some of us, we just need to be like the, the, the prodigal son, and we just need to turn and walk back towards the father, and we will find a father who comes running after us running after us. Look again at verse 31. 
So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Isn't that shocking? Now, wait a second. I think my tech person is trying to tell me something because I don't think that that's the part of the sentence that everyone feels like might be shocking. The big yellow highlighter on the screen might be saying something different. Let me say this. If you get this, you don't have to worry about this. If you understand the grace and mercy and the goodness of God, you don't have to worry about this. Here's, here's why. Let me show it to you this way. Let me show it to you this way. Um, you know the story of Adam and Eve? Okay, so let me tell you, because apparently nobody in our church knows the story of Adam and Eve. There, there's this book, it's called the Bible. And um, at the beginning is the table of contents. God wrote that. And, uh, and then there's a foreword. I don't know who, who writes a foreword for God's biography, right? Um, no, <laughs> the story of Adam and Eve. God makes everything. You remember this? God makes everything. He creates everything. And he says over and over again, there's this rhythm. There's this beauty to the Hebrew poem. That, uh, and, it, and, and God saw everything and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it's this beautiful poem in Hebrew. And, um, and then he makes Adam and Eve. And, th and then what's he says? He says it's, it's very good. In the Hebrew, uh, when they want to emphasize something, they just repeat it. So literally in the Hebrew, it says, uh, God created Adam and Eve and it was Good, good. <laughs> I think we should bring that back, right? By dinner, good, good. I kill, big stick, right? Um, it was very good. And, and they're in the garden, and he says, you know, just like, go at it, right? Yeah, that's yours. Go, have fun, right? And they're in the garden, and he says, but, but there's this one tree, right? It's the, knowledge of the, tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You've heard the story, right? And he says, you, you don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you may think, like, wait a second. Like, what magical powers was in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And it wasn't, this isn't like a Disney movie. There wasn't, like, like sparks flying around it and, like, some weird blue spirit thing hovering above it of, like, <laughs> I'm the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, it wasn't like, it was a tree. And then there's a serpent, and a serpent comes, and he talks to the Eve, and, and, and he convinces Eve that she should eat the apple, and she takes the apple, and she eats from the apple, and then don't miss this, incredibly important, don't miss this, Adam is standing next to his wife the whole time and says nothing. And she hands it to Adam and he eats as well. Because you see, there was nothing magical about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what God gave them in that tree was he gave them choice. If that tree that God said, don't touch this tree, don't eat from this tree, had not been there, they would not have had the choice to follow him, to love him, or to disobey and to rebel, and he gave them choice. And when they take that fruit, and they eat from it, and they consume it, there's not like this like, like, like weird like Cinderella story movie thing or something where they're like, Bleh! and then these like things happen to their body. None of that happened. But rather, in that moment when they take that fruit, and they choose to disobey God, when they choose to actually blaspheme God, they take that fruit and they eat it and they come to a kind of knowledge in here of what it means to rebel against God. And then do you remember the story? God comes and he you know, shows up 
And he's like, hey, what's going on here? I mean, he knows he's God. It says before the foundation of the world that Christ was crucified. He knew this was going to happen. But he comes anyways. He comes to Adam and he's like, hey, what's going on? He gives Adam a chance. It's kind of like with your kids. When you know exactly what your kids did and you walk in the room and you go, what happened in here? I don't know. There were elves in the backyard and they broke everything, right? Like, I was watching through the window, right? God's like, I'm watching through the window, Adam. But, but did you hear what Adam says? Adam, Adam says this. He says, that woman you gave me. It's not my fault. You, the thing that you gave, that God says, this is what God says, this is good, good. This is very good. Adam says, you're wicked because you gave me this bad thing. It's your fault. That woman, you gave me. God, this is your fault. What you gave and designed to be good was actually not good, was evil and wicked. You were evil and wicked because you've given me evil and wicked things. That's blasphemy. And you know what the gospel tells us, what scripture tells us, is that apart from Jesus, that's what we're constantly doing. Apart from Jesus, we're saying, God, God, grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, I don't want that. The good things, the, the overflow of the abundance of your love that's poured out for all, for all mankind, that there can be freedom and life and joy and purpose and reconciliation and restoration, all these good things. I don't want any of that. That that good thing you're trying to give me, I don't want it. It's wicked. It's oppressive. It doesn't, it doesn't give me the freedom to do the things I want to do. It, doesn't, it robs me of all the fun things that I want to do. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. And, and see, about what we know about God and what we see throughout Scripture, it, the question I would pose to you is if someone says to God, God, I don't want grace I don't want forgiveness, I don't want freedom, I don't want hope, I don't want you, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want you interrupting my life, I don't want you expecting me to live differently, I don't want you to expect me to be obedient and sacrificial and, and, and carry my cross, I don't want any of that. About what we know about God and what we know about scripture, does it seem like it would be right and ethical and good for God to go, well, suck it up? No. No, in fact, the greatest wrath of God is for God to say to people, you don't want me? Okay. And see, this is what, Matt, what Matthew's recording Jesus talking about is that when we say to God, I don't, I don't want freedom, I don't want grace, I don't want mercy, I don't want forgiveness, I don't want restoration, I don't want you to take the broken and ugly things in my life and to make them beautiful and whole. I don't want the good things of your grace and mercy. That is the only thing. That is the only thing that is unforgivable. That is the only thing that will keep you from the grace and mercy of God is as long as we stand here and say, God, I don't want it. You see, this is what Jesus teaches. This is what Paul teaches. This is what John teaches. This is what uh, all of scripture teaches is that this word over and over again, repent. And it's simply us turning away from our blasphemy, from our sin, from our running from God and coming back to the foot of the cross and saying, no, you are good. There is life and there's freedom in you. And there's life and freedom for every single one of us. There is nothing. Hear me, hear me, hear me. There is nothing that you could have done that would prevent our good father from seeing you walking down the road, turning and walking towards him that would prevent him from running to you. 
to embrace you, to say, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The promise and the gift to you stands still today.